0: This is chapter 18, titled, The Stars, a Celestial Census. This chapter has four sections. The first section is 18.1, a Stellar Census, 18.2, measuring stellar masses, 18.3, diameters of stars, and 18.4, which is really important, the HR diagram. There's an opening image for this chapter, which I really encourage you to look at, because it's just gorgeous. It's figure 18.1, titled Variety of Stars, and the caption reads, stars come in a variety of sizes, masses, temperatures, and luminosities. This image shows part of a cluster of stars in the small Magellanic Cloud, catalog number NGC 290, located about 200,000 light years away. NGC 290 is about 65 light years across. Because the stars in this cluster are all about the same distance from us, 200,000 light years away. The differences in apparent brightness correspond to differences in luminosity. Differences in temperature account for the differences in color. The Various colors and luminosities of these stars provide clues about their life stories. How do stars form? How long do they live? And how do they die? Stop and think about how hard it is to answer these questions. Stars live such a long time that nothing much can be gained from staring at one for a human lifetime. To discover how stars evolve from birth to death, since we can't witness it in our lifetime for a single star, it was necessary to measure the characteristics of many stars, to take a celestial census in effect, and then determine which characteristics help us understand the star's life stories. Astronomers tried a variety of hypotheses about stars until they came up with the right approach to understanding their development. But the key was first making a thorough census of the stars around us. This is section 18.1, a stellar census. By the end of this section, you should be able to do two things. First, explain why the stars visible to the unaided eye are not typical and second, describe the distribution of stellar masses found close to the Sun. Before we can make our own survey, we need to agree on a unit of distance appropriate to the objects we are studying. The stars are all so far away that kilometers, which are kinda like miles, and even astronomical units, one astronomical unit being the distance between the Earth and the Sun, would be very cumbersome to use. We don't want to think in such big numbers. So Astronomers use a much larger measuring stick called the light year. A light year is the distance that light, the fastest signal we know, travels in a year. Since light covers an astounding 300,000 kilometers per second, and since there are lots of seconds in one year, can you imagine counting each second of a year? A light year is a very large quantity. It's 9.5 trillion kilometers to be exact. Bear in mind that the light year is the unit of distance even though the term year appears in it. Just to get a sense of how big a light year is, I'd like to invite you on a road trip So we're going to get in a car and we're going to drive at the average U.S. speed limit, which is, I don't know, 60, 70 miles per hour or something like that. And what I'd like you to imagine is that we don't have to stop for food or water or anything like that. Somehow we're automatically recharged. We just don't have to think about it. And... Let's say we're driving a Tesla, an electric vehicle, and we have solar panels strapped to the top. So we're just constantly um, recharging our batteries, at least during the day, and we don't have to worry about slowing down or anything degrading on us over time. It's just all perfect. So what I would like to do is travel a complete light year at the average US speed limit with you. All right, how long do you think it would take us? It would not take us a year. It would take light traveling in space a year because light travels at an amazing 300,000 kilometers per second. But us traveling at the U.S. speed limit, it would take us 12 million years to travel that distance. So it's a huge distance. The closest star that we know of, at least the one closest to us, is more than four light years away. So (laughs) traveling at our speed, it would take us about 48 million light years, or 48 million years, almost 50 million years. Notice that we have not yet said much about how such enormous distances can be measured. That itself is a complicated question and we'll return to it in the next chapter. For now, let us assume that distances have been measured for stars in our cosmic vicinity so that we can proceed with our census. One of the reasons we do a census in the United States is to get an accurate count of the population, to serve as a basis for fair political representation. It plays a vital role in democracy and many other areas in life. And when we do a census, we count the inhabitants by neighborhood. We can try the same approach for our stellar census and begin with our own immediate neighborhood. As we shall see, we run into two problems, just as we do with a census of human beings. First, it's hard to be sure that we've counted all the inhabitants. Second, our local neighborhood may not contain all the possible types of people, or in this case, stars. Table 18.1 in our text shows an estimate of the number of stars of each spectral type in our own local neighborhood, and that's within 21 light-years of the Sun. Now, mind you, the Milky Way galaxy where our sun lives, we live, is about 100,000 light years in diameter. So looking within 21 light years of our own sun is really a very local neighborhood, one that contains a tiny fraction of all the billions of stars in the Milky Way. You can see that there are many more low luminosity and hence low mass stars than high luminosity ones. Only three of the stars in our local neighborhood one f-type, and two a-types are significantly more luminous and more massive than the Sun. Only three. This is truly a case where small triumphs over large, at least in terms of numbers. The Sun is more massive than the vast majority of stars in our vicinity. The table is based on data published through 2015, and it is likely that more faint objects remain to be discovered. It's not likely we'll see any brighter objects than we've already seen. Along with the L and T brown dwarfs already observed in our local neighborhood, astronomers expect to find perhaps hundreds of additional T dwarfs. Many of these are likely to be even cooler than the coolest currently-known T dwarf. The reason that the lowest-mass dwarfs are so hard to find is that they put out very little light— 10,000 to a million times less light than the Sun. Only recently has our technology progressed to the point that we can detect these dim, cool objects. To put all of this in perspective, we note that even though stars counted in the table are our closest neighbors, You can't just look up at the night sky and see them without a telescope. Stars fainter than the Sun cannot be seen with the unaided eye unless they're very close. For example, stars with luminosities ranging from 1 100th to 1 10,000th the luminosity of the Sun are very common. But a star with a luminosity of one one-hundredth of the Sun would have to be within five light years, that's really close, to be visible to the naked eye, and only three stars are this close to us. The nearest of these stars, Proxima Centauri, still cannot be seen without a telescope because it has such a low luminosity. Astronomers are working hard these days to complete the census of our local neighborhood by finding our faintest neighbors. Recent discoveries of nearby stars have relied heavily upon infrared telescopes that are able to find these many cool, low-mass stars. You should expect the number of known stars within 21 light-years of the Sun to keep increasing as more and better surveys are undertaken. Bright does not necessarily mean close. If we confine our senses to the local neighborhood, we will miss many of the most interesting kinds of stars. After all, the neighborhood in which you live doesn't contain all the types of people, distinguished according to age, education, income, race, and so on, that live in the entire country. For example, a few people do live to be over 100 years old, but there may be no such individual within several miles of where you live. In order to sample the full range of the human population, you would have to extend your census to a much larger area. Similarly, some types of stars simply are not found nearby. A clue that we are missing something in our stellar census comes from the fact that only 6 of the 20 stars that appear brightest in our sky, Sirius, Vega, Altair, Alpha Centauri, Formal Hote, and Procyon are found within 26 light years of the sun. Why are we missing most of the brightest stars when we take our senses of the local neighborhood? The answer, interestingly enough, is that the stars that appear brightest are not the ones closest to us. The brightest stars look that way because they emit a very large amount of energy, so much, in fact, that they do not have to be nearby to look brilliant. You can confirm this by looking at appendix J in our text, which gives distances for the 20 stars that appear brightest from Earth. The most distant of these stars is more than 1,000 light-years from us. In fact, it turns out that the most of the stars visible without a telescope are hundreds of light-years away and many times more luminous than the Sun. Among the 9,000 stars visible to the unaided eye, only about 50 are intrinsically fainter than the Sun. Note also that several of the stars in Appendix J are spectral type B a type that is completely missing from table 18.1, which again, points at the stars that are within 21 light-years of the Sun. The most luminous of the bright stars listed in Appendix J emit more than 50,000 times more energy than does the Sun. These highly luminous stars are missing from the solar neighborhood because they are very rare. None of them happens to be in the tiny volume of space immediately around the Sun, and only the small volume was surveyed to get the data shown in Table 18.1. For example, let's consider the most luminous stars, those 100 or more times as luminous than the Sun. Although such stars are rare, they are visible to the unaided eye, even when hundreds to thousands of light years away. A star with a luminosity 10,000 times greater than that of the sun can be seen without a telescope out to a distance of, guess what, 5,000 light years. We were talking about our local neighborhood as being the region of space that's within 21 light years of Earth. (laughs) So the volume of space included within a distance of 5,000 light years is enormous. So even though highly luminous stars are intrinsically rare, many of them are readily visible to our unaided eye. The contrast between these two samples of stars, those that are close to us, and those that can be seen with the unaided eye, even though they're far away, they're so bright, is an example of a selection effect. When a population of objects, stars in this example, includes a great variety of different types, we must be careful what conclusions we draw from an examination of a particular subgroup, particularly the group that just stands out more. Certainly we would be fooling ourselves if we assumed that the stars visible to the unaided eye are characteristic of the general stellar population. This subgroup is heavily weighted towards the most luminous stars. It requires much more effort to assemble a complete data set for the nearest stars since most are so faint that they can be observed only with a telescope. However, it is only by doing so astronomers are able to know about the properties of the vast majority of the stars which are actually much smaller and fainter than our own. In the next section we will look at how we measure some of these properties. There's an example here which is quite frightening to me and that is that in politics, in a democracy, we tend to pay attention to the voices that are the loudest or the most in the public eye. And when things are repeated again and again, or it seems like a crowd is moving in one direction, we have a cognitive bias where we tend to believe what's being said, even if it's not true, or follow that crowd, even if in our quiet, in our own minds, we would decide that that's not a good direction. Something to be careful of. So those are the biggest and loudest of the voices, just like... We see the brightest stars. We don't want to assume that those brightest stars are like all the others or that the loudest voices are representative of the whole because generally, most of the stars out there are quite dim. They're quite quiet. And most of the people out there, your neighbors, people in the store, people on the street, people you don't know, are generally more quiet and not in the public eye. The only way to know that they're there is to look for them and the only way to know anything about them their thoughts, their beliefs, their desires, is to talk to them. So, it's kind of an analogy between the stars that we tend to see and believe are representative of the whole, and the stars that we know more about by quietly looking and listening. If we want to represent our local neighborhood or our galaxy as a whole, we have to pay attention to all the stars. Just like if we want to represent the needs and desires of our country, we have to talk to and listen to all of the people. This is section 18.2, which is on measuring the mass of a star. And by the end of the section, you should be able to do three things. One, distinguish the different types of binary star systems. Two, have a basic understanding of how we can apply Newton's version of Kepler's Third Law to derive the sum of the star masses in a binary star system. And three, apply the relationship between stellar mass and stellar luminosity to determine the physical characteristics of a star. The mass of a star, which is how much material that star contains, is one of its most important characteristics. Now this is cool. If we know a star's mass, then we can estimate how long the star will shine and what its ultimate fate will be. Just knowing its mass will tell us that. Yet, the mass of a star is very difficult to measure directly. We can't just take a star and put it on a scale and look at how much it weighs or determine its mass that way. Somehow we need to be more clever than that. Luckily, not all stars live like the Sun, in isolation from other stars. About half of the stars are binary stars, my favorite kinds of star systems. And binary stars are two stars that orbit each other bound together by gravity. As a review, or as new information if you've never heard this before, we determine the mass of our Sun by measuring the orbits of the planets around our Sun. So we look at how far away each planet is and how long it takes to orbit. And through that we can figure out how much mass the Sun must have. Isn't that cool? And it turns out the masses of binary stars can be calculated for measuring their orbits of each other. Let's turn our attention to binary stars. Before we discuss in more detail how mass can be measured, we take a closer look at stars that come in pairs. The first binary star was discovered in 1650, less than half a century after Galileo began to observe the sky with a telescope. Jean-Baptiste Riccioli, 1598 to 1671, an Italian astronomer noted that the star Mazar, in the middle of the Big Dipper's handle, appeared through his telescope as two separate stars. Since that discovery, thousands of binary stars have been catalogued. Astronomers call any pair of stars that appear to be close to each other in the sky double stars, but not all of these form a true binary. That is, not all of them are physically bound by gravity. Some are just chance alignments of stars that are actually at different distances from us. For example, we know that the sun is much further away from Earth than the moon. But just before or just after a total solar eclipse, the objects are close to each other in the sky. And someone seeing the two objects for the first time may think that they're really close to each other. Although, and this really may be a surprise, stars most commonly come in pairs, so two stars are gravitationally bound and orbit one another. Though there are systems that contain only one star, like our Sun, and there are also triple and quadruple systems, where for the triple system you have three stars that are gravitationally bound and orbit one another, and for quadruple systems you have four stars that are gravitationally bound and orbit one another. One well-known binary star is Castor, located in the constellation of Gemini. By 1804, astronomer William Herschel, who also discovered the planet Uranus, noted that the fainter, fainter component of Castor had a slightly changed its position relative to the brighter component. We use the term component to mean the member of a star system. This is important because it was evidence that one star was moving around another star. It was also the first evidence that gravitational influences exist outside of our solar system. When we can see both stars in a binary star system through a telescope, we call that a visual binary. And an example is shown in figure 18.4 in the text. But notice I said (laughs) when. We can't always see both stars in a binary system. We have to be a little more clever. Edward C. Pickering, 1846 to 1919, at Harvard discovered a second class of binary stars in 1889, a class in which only one of the stars is actually seen directly. He was examining the spectrum of Miser and found that the dark absorption lines in the brighter star's spectrum were usually double. Not only were the two lines where astronomers normally saw one, but the spacing between the lines was constantly changing, so the lines were getting closer and then further away from each other, and at times, the lines even converged to become a single line. Pickering correctly deduced that the brighter component of Miser, called Miser A, is itself really two stars that revolve around each other in a period of about 104 days. A star like Miser A, which appears as a single star when photographed or observed visually through a telescope, but which spectroscopically shows really to be a double star, is called a spectroscopic binary. Miser, by the way, is a good example of just how complex such star systems can be. Miser has been known for centuries to have a faint companion called Alcor, which can be seen without a telescope. Miser and Alcor form an optical double, a pair of stars that appear close together in the sky, but do not orbit one another. Through a telescope, As Riccioli discovered in 1650, Miser can be seen to have another, closer companion that does orbit it. Miser is thus a visual binary. The two components that make up this visual binary, known as Miser A and Miser B, are both spectroscopic binaries, so Miser is really a quadruple system of stars. We see that Miser A and Miser B are orbiting each other through the telescope, but when we look at Miser A more closely through a a spectrograph, we see that it has two parts indicating that there are actually two stars there, and the same with Miser B. We see two parts indicating that there are two stars there, one we can't see. Strictly speaking, it is not correct to describe the motion of a binary star system by saying that one star orbits the other, so I apologize for that. Gravity is a mutual attraction. Each star exerts a gravitational force on the other, with the result that both stars orbit a point between them called the center of mass. Imagine that the two stars are seated at either end of a seesaw. The point at which the fulcrum would have to be in order for the seesaw to balance is the center of mass, and it's always closer to the more massive star. A physical experiment where you can figure out where the fulcrum is on an object is you can take a pen or a pencil and try to balance it on your finger so that it's sideways, meaning that the axis of the pen is perpendicular to your finger. Inevitably, one side of the pen or pencil is going to be heavier than the other side, and you'll find that you have to put your finger close to that heavier point. And once you do that, you've found the center of mass. The next paragraph goes into detail about a spectroscopic binary, and it's really insightful. But I'm, I'm putting a commentary here because the next paragraph refers to a figure the whole time. So it's trying to explain how a spectroscopic binary works, but it refers to a figure. And what I'd like you to do is spend some time looking at this figure. So I really encourage you to look at the figure. It's 18.6 in the text. But what I'll do right now in case you don't have the text in front of you is I'll give you a visual to hold on to. So what it is that they're, they're trying to show. And I'm going to use a frisbee. So a frisbee has the shape of a plate. And imagine that the frisbee is on a table. And so it's it's laying flat. And what I would say is that it's it's laying along a horizontal. So it's, it's just flat. And let's say you pick up the frisbee and you balance it on your finger such that it's still laying in the same orientation. It's still along a horizontal. And then let's say you make two points on the frisbee. You get a marker and on the right side, you draw a little mark and on the uh, exact opposite side, you draw another mark. So if you were to um, connect the two marks with a straight line, it would it would the line would end or would start on one of the points that you drew, and it would end on the other, and it would pass through the diameter, It would pass through the center to so define the diameter of the Frisbee. Okay, but the point is, you have a Frisbee on your finger, and it's lying along the horizontal, and there are two points, one exactly opposite the other. And those two points are going to represent two stars. Now, let's say that you spin the Frisbee. So it's spinning around um, and you're just balancing it on your finger. If you spin it such that when you look down from the top, it's moving a, in a counterclockwise direction, then when one of the, the stars, which is that marker point that you, you made, is on the uh, left side moving towards you, it's twin on the other side, it's other, the other star is moving away from you. So. Um, As the plate spins, you have this thing where on the left side, at some point along the spin, you'll see that point starting to move towards you, and then you'll see the other point simultaneously moving away from you on the other side. Alright, so that's one type of uh, motion that the two stars have, where one is moving towards you and the other is simultaneously moving away from you. Then after a quarter spin, you have the two points such that one is really close to you and one is further away. So one is on your side, the other is on the exact opposite side of the frisbee, and neither are moving toward or away from you. One just happens to be moving to the right and the other is moving towards the uh, left. And then over another quarter spin, you have that exact same initial position where on the right, you have a star moving towards you and a star moving away from you. So that's basically what the image is is showing. But it's also beneath. It's showing the spectrograph that we would see in each of those situations. So hopefully this reading will make a little more sense now. Figure 18.6 shows two stars, A and B, moving around their center of mass along with one line in the spectrum of each star that we observe from the system at different times. When one star is approaching us relative to the center of mass, the other star is receding from us. In the top left illustration, star A is moving towards us. So Its line in the spectrum is Doppler shifted towards the blue. It's blue shifted because it's moving towards us. Star B simultaneously is moving away from us, so its line is red shifted. When we observe the composite spectrum of the two stars, we have two lines instead of one. One is blue shifted and one is red shifted. After the stars have moved to the extent that they are... A quarter of their way along the orbit, they're moving neither nor towards nor away from us. One is moving to the left, exactly to the left, and one is moving exactly to the right. Then when we look at the spectrum, at that particular moment in time, because neither is blue shifted and neither is red shifted, we see a single line in the spectrum. The point is this, when we have a spectroscopic binary, The way we identify it is we analyze the light coming from the system. And what we see, even though we can't see both stars in the telescope, what we see in the spectrum is that their lines don't remain the same. They split and then they come back together. And then they split and they come back together and then they split and they come back together. And this motion tells us that we have two stars and it also, because we have the time it takes for them to come back together, we know how long it takes for them to orbit one another this is great there is a link to learning box now and it has a link to an animation that i recommend that you visit it says this animation lets you follow the orbits of a binary star system in various combinations of the masses of the two stars so you can change one mass relative to the other and see how it changes their actual orbital time and their orbital characteristics we are going to do something really cool and If you're not familiar with physics or astronomy yet, it might seem kind of magical, but to me, it's just one of those beautiful things that studying the sciences um, lets us do. It helps us find out things that we wouldn't have known otherwise. So we're going to look at the orbital characteristics of a binary star system, that is, how far the stars are away from one another and how long it takes them to complete one orbit around the center of mass in order to determine the masses of those two stars. Now that's pretty cool. Before we jump into the reading, let's quickly think about a couple of famous scientists. One is Johann Kepler, and the other is Isaac Newton. Starting with Johann Kepler, he was given the task of analyzing a lot of data, planetary data. And from that, he developed three laws of planetary motion. And the cool thing is they don't only apply to planets, and he looked at our planets around our sun, they also apply to things like binary stars, where the orbital process takes place with two stars orbiting a common center of mass. And the three laws of planetary motion basically go like this. The first law says that everything orbiting that has an orbital motion its orbit doesn't trace a circle. It actually traces an ellipse. So all the planets going around the sun, they have an elliptical path. And the same is true for two binary stars as they orbit a common center of mass. They trace an ellipse rather than a circle. The second law of planetary motion is that when the objects are further away from the center of mass, they tend to move slower, and when they're close they move faster. We don't have to worry about that one here. And then the last one, the third law, is the important one for this discussion, and that is that if the planets are further away from the thing they're orbiting, or in this case, if the Two stars in a binary star system are further away from each other, then their period, the time it takes to complete one orbit, is longer. So with the planets, this just means that um, the planets such as Neptune and Uranus and Saturn and Jupiter, which are further away from the Sun than we are, take a longer time to go around the Sun. Similarly, if we have a binary star system where the two stars are relatively close to each other, it'll take them less time to complete one full orbit. If we compare it to another binary star system where the stars are further away from each other, it will take them longer to complete one orbit. In a nutshell, Kepler's three laws of planetary motion, which apply to binary star systems as well, are that something that is orbiting something else. The orbit that it traces is not a circle. It'll trace the path of an ellipse. The second law basically says that when the object is farther away from the point it's orbiting, the center of mass in a binary star system, for example, is going to move slower, and it's going to move faster when it's closer to that point. And the third law says that The smaller the orbit, the shorter the time it takes for the object to complete an orbit. Those are basically the three laws of of Kepler's planetary motion, which again apply to stars as well. And Newton was another scientist. who helped us put equations to the things that we saw. Now, just an aside, and this is probably too much of a diversion, but Newton helped us describe mathematically the motion that we see in our everyday lives. So if we drop a pin on the floor or see an apple fall from a tree, or if we see the moon move around the earth, or we see other planets moving around the sun and the sun in the sky, and we think about binary star systems, all of those things can be described with Newton's laws of motion. And they're really important. They helped us develop NASA rockets and SpaceX rockets and all kinds of different things. They all come from Newton's laws. There are other laws of physics that apply in different places where Newton's laws don't work, and those are things that... Those are in the regions of things that are very, very tiny, like um, electrons and protons. If we want to actually think about their motion, we have to apply quantum mechanics. So that's where that particular field applies. And when we want to think about objects moving at the speed of light, and we want to think about crazy things that happen with gravity in particular situations, then we have to apply some laws that Einstein developed. So we have to apply relativity, be it special relativity or general relativity. But the cool thing is Newton way back in the day developed some really simple elegant laws that apply to so many things that we see. And he helped us better understand how to apply Kepler's third law of motion for the planets and what we see binary stars. Okay, we're going to jump into the reading. I lied, I'm not going to continue the reading, it's too heinous and too technical, but what I will do is summarize a couple of paragraphs, because I think it's a little easier if I put it in my own words, but tell you the same stuff. So what you know for a binary star system is that you have two stars that are gravitationally bound to each other, and they are orbiting a common center of mass. We're going to call, we're going to use a variable to call the time it takes to go around, to complete one complete orbit, we're gonna call that P. So P will be for the period of time it takes for one complete orbit. If it were Earth, the value for P would be 365 days. If it were Mercury, the value of P would be 88 days. So P can take on any value, it just depends on what we're talking about. So we're gonna just leave it generic and we can apply it to any binary star system. So that's P, all right. I am going to write P on my paper, and P just stands for how long it takes for one of the stars in a binary star system to complete one orbit, so that is a time, P, P for period. I'm also going to write D on my paper, and D is going to be a distance. D is going to be the semi-major axis of the orbit, so if I look at one of the objects, the binary star, and I measure its semi-major axis, I'm going to call that D so I'm going to give it a variable because it really depends on which binary star system I'm looking at. For some binary star systems d is going to have a value that's small, for others it's going to have a value that's big. So I'm just going to leave it as a variable so it will apply generically to any binary system and for that binary system I can plug in actual values for both d and p. But right now I'm going to leave it general. So if I take d the semi-major axis, and I cube it, so I raise it to the third power. Then I divide by p, and I square p, so I have d cubed divided by p squared. Then that ratio, as it turns out, is going to equal something magical, beautiful. It is going to equal the sum of the two masses in the binary star system. So, regardless of what binary star system I'm looking at, if I measure the semi-major axis, which we can do, and I measure the period, which we can do, and then I take that value for the semi-major axis and I cube it, and I divide it by the square of the period, then the number that I get in that calculation is going to equal the sum of the two masses of those binary stars. Isn't that fantastic? (laughs) I think it's the coolest thing ever. Now this is the subject of this part of the section. Now we'll go back into the reading. Most spectroscopic binaries have periods ranging from a few days to a few months, with separations of usually less than one astronomical unit between their member stars. Recall that an astronomical unit, an AU, is the distance from Earth to the Sun. So this is a small separation and very hard to see at the distances of stars. This is why so many of these systems are known to be double only through careful study of their spectra. I know you want to ask me, I know you want to know, hey Ellen, how can I go determine the period of a binary star system, and how can I determine that value d, that semi-major axis, because I want to go calculate the sum of masses of binary stars, I want to go figure out what that sum is, and it's really not that hard, it's a little complex, but it's, it's in the end pretty straightforward. What we do is we measure the speeds of the stars from the Doppler effect, and we then determine the period, so how long it takes for the stars to go through an orbital cycle. That's pretty easy. We watch those lines in the spectrograph. We watch them uh, move towards and collapse to one line, move away from each other, move back towards to collapse one line, move away from each other, and then move back to collapse to one line. And it's, it's that time period that is related to or tells us exactly the orbital period. And then what we do is we consider how quick both stars are moving and from that we can calculate the circumference of the orbit and then therefore the separation of the stars. From Kepler's law we then have the period and the separation distance and we can determine the sum of the two masses as you saw before. Of course knowing the sum of the masses is not as useful as knowing the mass of each of the stars separately. but The relative orbital speeds of the two stars can tell us how much of the total mass each star has. If you remember the seesaw analogy, or that analogy where you're balancing your pen or pencil on your finger, the heavier side, the more massive side, is closer to the center of mass. And in our case for a binary star system, that means the more massive star is closer to the center of mass. That also means the more massive star has a smaller orbit. If the massive star were by itself, we didn't have to consider the other star, you might say, that it would have to have a shorter period, therefore it would go around more quickly. But you got to remember, these two stars have the same orbital period. And because it takes them both the same amount of time to make one complete orbit around the same center of mass, and one is closer, that means in this case, the one that's closer is actually going to travel a little more slowly. So the more massive star is closer to the center, but because it has to make a complete orbit in the same amount of time that the star further away has to complete an orbit, the more massive star is going to move more slowly, the further away lighter star is going to move more quickly. Some people like to say, describing situations, the rest is just History. And what I'll say at this point for our discussion, the rest is just details. The main points are if we can determine the orbital period in a binary star system, and if we can determine the semi-major axis in a binary star system, and then if we can determine the relative velocities of each of the two stars, how they're related to each other, we can determine the mass of each of the binary stars. And that is the beauty and magic of physics that allows us to see nature a little more clearly. Now let's consider the question, how massive can stars be? What's the range of stellar masses? As it turns out, stars more massive than the Sun are rare. None of the stars within 30 light years of the Sun has a mass more than four times that of the Sun. Searches at large distances from the sun have led to the discovery of a few stars with masses up to about 100 times that of the sun and a handful of stars, that would be a few out of several billion, may have masses as large as 250 solar masses. But most of the stars have mass less than the sun. According to theoretical calculations, the smallest mass that a true star can have is about one-twelfth that of the sun. By a true star, astronomers mean one that becomes hot enough to fuse protons to form helium, so to undergo nuclear fusion using protons. Objects with masses between roughly 1 100th and 1 12th that of the sun may produce energy for a brief time by means of nuclear reactions involving deuterium, which is that heavy hydrogen, but they don't become hot enough to fuse protons. Such objects are intermediate in mass between stars and planets and have been given the name brown dwarfs. Brown dwarfs are similar to Jupiter in radius, but have masses from approximately 13 to 80 times larger than the mass of Jupiter. Still smaller objects with masses less than about 1 one-hundredth the mass of the Sun, or 10 Jupiter masses, are called planets. They may radiate energy produced by the radioactive elements they contain, and they may also radiate heat generated by slowly compressing under their own weight, which is that gravitational contraction we talked about before. But their interiors will never reach temperatures high enough for any nuclear reactions to take place. Jupiter, whose mass is about one one one-thousandth the mass of the sun, is unquestionably a planet. If you remember, there is this amazing connection between the mass of a star and its luminosity, so let's talk about that connection. Now that we have measurements of the characteristics of many different types of stars, we can search for relationships among the characteristics. For example, we can ask whether mass and luminosity are related in a star. It turns out that for most stars, they are. The more massive stars are generally also the more luminous. This relationship, known as the mass-luminosity relation, is shown in a graph in figure 18.9. And the graph has points that represent stars, whose mass and luminosity are both known. The horizontal position on the graph shows the star's mass given in units of the sun's mass, and the vertical position shows its luminosity in units of the sun's luminosity. And what you see looking at the graph is that it's a line, and the line trends upwards. So increased mass does give increased luminosity, but it's not a linear relationship. It's not a one-to-one relationship, meaning that if you double the mass, you don't get double the luminosity. If you double the mass of a star, if it could somehow double, the luminosity would go up, not by a factor of two, but by a factor of close to 16. So it's a good approximation to say that the luminosity goes as the fourth power of the mass. There's an example box here where they go through a calculation, and they calculate the mass from the luminosity of a star, and they compare it to the sun, but we're going to skip over that. Please take a look at it if you have a moment and you're math-minded like I am, because it's a lot of fun. Um, Otherwise, I'll just conclude with the last part of this section, which says, notice how good this mass-luminosity relationship is. Most stars in the graph fall along a line running from the lower left, low mass, low luminosity corner of the diagram, to the upper right, high mass, high luminosity corner. About 90% of the stars obey the mass-luminosity relation. Later, we'll explore why such a relationship exists and what we can learn from the roughly 10% of stars that disobey it. This is section 18.3, which is on the diameters of stars, and by the end of this section, you should be able to do two things. First, to describe the methods we use to determine star diameters, and second, to identify the parts of an eclipsing binary star light curve that correspond to the diameters of the individual stars in the binary star system. It's easy to measure the diameter of the Sun. Its angular diameter, or the apparent size in the sky, is about half a degree. With that, knowing how far away it is, we can calculate its true linear diameter, which is amazingly large. It's 1.39 million kilometers, or about 109 times the diameter of Earth. Unfortunately, the sun is the only star whose angular diameter is easily measured. All the other stars are so far away that they look like pinpoints of light through even the largest ground-based telescopes. They often seem bigger, but that's merely a distortion introduced by the turbulence in Earth's atmosphere. Luckily, there are several techniques that astronomers can use to estimate the size of stars. First, let's consider how Of all things, the moon can help us tell how large a star is. So this technique gives very precise diameters, but can only be used for a few stars. And what we do is we watch the the moon as it gets close to the star. And we time as the moon's edge reaches the edge of the star, we time how long it takes for the moon to totally block the light from the star. Not for the moon to pass from one side to the other side, but for the moon just to darken the star completely, which is a short amount of time. But what we know is how quickly the moon moves across the sky, and with that, it's possible to calculate the angular diameter of the star. But to calculate its actual diameter, we also need to know the distance to the star. So if we have that distance, then calculating the diameter in kilometers is a simple task. This method works only for bright stars that happen to lie along the zodiac, where the moon, or, much more rarely, a planet, can can pass in front of them as seen from the earth. Now, there's another neat way that we can determine the diameter of a star, and that involves the eclipse of a star. You've probably thought about, or even maybe seen, the total eclipse of the sun, and that occurs when the moon blocks our view of the sun, and when it's usually day, it can become night. So we don't receive as much light from the sun as we normally do. And this can also happen with other stars. They're not as noticeable because we don't really receive daylight from other stars, but What can happen with, in particular, a binary star system is that one of the stars can move in front of the other and the total light that we receive is dropped because the light from the star behind has now been blocked. The discovery of the first eclipsing binary helps solve a long-standing puzzle in astronomy. There's a star in the constellation of Perseus that changes its brightness in an odd but regular way. Normally, it's a fairly bright star, but at intervals of two days, 20 hours, and 49 minutes on the dot, it fades to one-third of its regular brightness, and then after a few hours, it brightens to normal again. This effect is easily seen even without a telescope, if you know what to look for. In 1783, a young English astronomer who could neither hear nor speak and didn't live very long, he was born in 1764 and died in 1786. Anyway, his name was John Goodrick, and he made a careful study of this star. And while studying it, he made a number of major discoveries. He suggested that the star's unusual brightness variations might be due to an invisible companion that regularly passes in front of the brighter star and blocks its light. Unfortunately, Goodrich had no way to test his idea because it wasn't until about a century later that equipment became good enough to measure this particular star's spectrum. In 1889, about 100 years later, the German astronomer Hermann Vogel demonstrated that like Meiser, this particular star is a spectroscopic binary. The spectral lines of the star were not observed to be double because the fainter star of the pair gives off too little light compared with the brighter star for its lines to be conspicuous in the composite spectrum. Nevertheless, the periodic shifting back and forth of the star's brighter lines gave evidence that it was revolving about an unseen companion. The lines of both components need not be visible for a star to be recognized as a spectroscopic binary. The discovery that this particular star is a spectroscopic binary verified Goodrich's hypothesis. Any binary star produces eclipses if viewed from the proper direction, near the plane of its orbit, so that one star passes in front of the other. This was shown in figure 1810, and it's the same thing that we talked about when we had a frisbee balanced on our finger and we would spin the frisbee around. If two points, antipodal, so one on one side and one on the other side, represents one member of the binary star system, then at some point when neither star is moving toward or away from us, but when one star is moving to the right and the other star is moving to the left, One star will be directly behind the other, and we won't see as much light as we normally do. From our vantage point on Earth, only a few binary star systems are oriented this way. I want to draw our attention back to that first eclipsing binary that we discovered. We want to go back to that star that John Goodrich studied and said, hmm, there's something faint out there, and it's, it's orbiting that star. And that was true. There was a binary system, and we had one bright star and, and one fainter star. The brighter star is called Algol, and I'm bringing that up because we've reached in the reading a Making Connections box that's titled Astronomy and Mythology, Algol the Demon Star and Perseus the Hero. The box is really interesting because it goes into Greek mythology, but every time it mentions the name of a god or goddess, it gives us the Greek and Roman versions of the name, and so we're just going to go with the Greek names because it makes the reading a lot more straightforward. The name algol comes from the Arabic Ra al-ghul, meaning the demon's head, and the word ghoul in English has the same derivation. Many of the bright stars that we see in the sky have Arabic names, because during the long dark ages in medieval Europe, it was the Arabic astronomers who preserved and expanded the Greek and Roman knowledge of the skies. The reference to the demon is part of the ancient Greek legend of the hero Perseus, who is commemorated by the constellation in which we find Algol, and whose adventures involve many of the characters associated with northern constellations. Perseus was one of the many half-god heroes fathered by Zeus. Zeus was the king of the gods in Greek mythology. Zeus had, to put it delicately, a roving eye, and he was always fathering somebody with a human maiden who caught his fancy. Perseus, by the way, derives from per-Zeus, meaning fathered by Zeus. Well, Zeus's, Perseus's stepfather, wasn't very happy about what had happened, so Perseus' stepfather put him adrift with his mother in a boat and Perseus grew up on an island in the Aegean Sea. The king there, taking an interest in Perseus' mother, tried to get rid of Perseus by assigning him an extremely difficult task. In a moment of overarching pride, a beautiful young woman named Medusa, who was not a goddess, compared her golden hair to that of the goddess Athena. The Greek gods and goddesses did not take kindly to being compared to mere mortals, and Athena turned Medusa into a gorgon, which is a hideous, evil creature with writhing snakes for hair and a face that turned everyone who looked at it to stone. Perseus was given the task of slaying Medusa, which seemed like a pretty sure way for the king to get rid of Perseus forever. But because Perseus had a god for a father, some of the other gods gave him tools to do the job, including Athena's reflective shield and the wing sandals of Hermes, which would make him go fast. By flying over and looking only at her reflection, Perseus was able to cut Medusa's head off without even looking at her directly. He took her head, which conveniently could still turn onlookers to stone even without being attached to her body. And with her head, Perseus continued on to other adventures. Perseus next came to a rocky seashore, where, like in Medusa's case, boasting had gotten a family into serious troubles with the gods. Queen Cassiopeia had dared to compare her own beauty to that of sea nymphs, who were daughters of Poseidon, and Poseidon was the god of the sea. Poseidon was so offended that he created a sea monster named Cetus to devastate the kingdom. Cassiopeia's beleaguered husband consulted the oracle, who told him that he must sacrifice his beautiful daughter Andromeda to the monster. When Perseus came along, he found Andromeda chained to a rock near the sea, awaiting her fate, and he rescued her by turning the monster into stone. This is cool. Scholars of Mythology actually trace the essence of this story back to far older legends from ancient Mesopotamia, in which the god hero Marduk vanquishes a monster. Symbolically, a hero like Perseus or Marduk is usually associated with the sun. The monster is usually associated with the power of night, and the beautiful maiden with the fragile beauty of dawn, which the sun releases after its nightly struggle with the darkness. Many of the characters in these Greek legends can be found as constellations in the sky, not necessarily resembling their namesakes, but serving as reminders of the story. For example, Van Cassiopeia is sentenced to be very close to the celestial pole, rotating perpetually around the night sky and hanging upside down every winter. The ancients imagined Andromeda still chained to her rock. It is much easier to see the chain of stars than to recognize the beautiful maiden in the star grouping. Perseus is next to her, with the head of Medusa swinging from his belt. Algol represents this gorgon head and has long been associated with evil and bad fortune in such tales. Some commentators have speculated that the stars change in brightness, which can be observed with the unaided eye due to the binary eclipse action happening, may have contributed to its unpleasant reputation, with the ancients regarding such a change as a sort of evil wink. Let's go back to the main point of this section and talk about how we can measure the diameters of stars. The technique involves making a light curve of an eclipsing binary, and a light curve is just a graph that that plots how brightness changes with time. Let's consider a binary system where one star is really small and the other star is really large. And let's continue considering the binary system so that it's oriented in such a way that an eclipse can occur between the two stars. So in other words, we'll go back to the visualization of a frisbee balanced on our finger and spinning. It's the edge of the frisbee as it turns that represents the path taken by these two stars. Even though we can't see the two stars separately in such a system when we're looking at them from a telescope on Earth, the light curve can tell us what's happening. Over time, the light curve will get dimmer and then brighter and then dimmer and then brighter. So let's think about what happens when the smaller star passes behind the larger star. When the smaller star just reaches the edge of the larger star, and it's about to start dipping behind the larger star. We call that point first contact, and that's really important to remember. And the star will move behind, behind the larger star until it's completely eclipsed by that star, and that's the second contact. So that's another important place to remember. But because the larger star is larger, the little star has to move for a while before it actually reaches the other edge of the larger star. So that's when it starts to emerge behind the larger star, and that's the third contact. And then as the star moves and it passes out of being hidden by the larger star, the point at which it's no longer hidden, that that first point where it's completely Um, not hidden by the larger star, that's called the fourth contact, or the last contact. So that's when the eclipse of the smaller star is completely over. Let's go through that again. First contact, the smaller star is just reaching the edge of the larger star. Now it's really far behind, but it looks to us like it's just reaching the edge. So light starts to drop. And then the smaller star is now completely eclipsed by the larger star that's the second contact. But then the small star has to travel a little bit before it reaches the other edge of the large star. And when it just reaches that edge, that's the third contact. And then the smaller star starts to emerge from behind the large star, and the point at which it's completely emerged from the larger star from behind it, that's the last contact. Okay, how does this let us measure diameters? This is all shown in a figure, which I encourage you to take a look at. Figure 1811, during the time interval between the first and second contacts, the small star has moved a distance equal to its own diameter. So think about that for a moment. During the time interval between the first and second contacts, the small star has moved a distance equal to its diameter. During the time interval from the first to the third contacts, the smaller star has moved a distance equal to the diameter of the larger star. If the spectral lines of both stars are visible in the spectrum of the binary, then the speed of the smaller star with respect to the larger one can be measured from the Doppler shift. But knowing the speed with which the smaller star is moving and how long it took to cover some distance can tell us That actual distance. In this case, the diameters of the stars. So if we take the speed of the smaller star and we multiply it by how long it takes for that small star to go from first to second contact, then we have the diameter of that small star. If we also multiply the speed by the time it takes for the small star to go between the first and third contacts, we can get the diameter of the larger star. In actuality, the situation with eclipsing binaries is often a little more complicated because orbits are not generally seen exactly edge-on and the light from each star may only be partially blocked by the other. Furthermore, binary star orbits, just like orbits of the planets, are ellipses, not circles. However, all these effects can be sorted out from very careful measurements of the light curve. Isn't this cool? There's another really neat and clever way that we can get at the diameter of a star, and it requires only measuring the radiation emitted by the star per unit time per unit area. So it requires the use of something called the Stefan-Boltzmann law, which is a really well-known, widely used law in physics that deals with radiation. So it gives a relationship between the energy radiated by something and its temperature. And it doesn't just have to be a star. It could be the pen in front of you. We can relate the temperature of the pen to the amount of energy radiated from it and vice versa. The same for you. We could (laughs) figure out how much energy your body is radiating and we can relate that to your temperature. At this point, the text takes the Stefan-Boltzmann law, which is an equation, and it manipulates a couple of things so that it derives an expression that we can actually make use of for the calculation of the diameters of stars in a binary star system. So what they do is they then take that useful derivation, and they apply it to a particular case. They're looking at Sirius and a companion star for Sirius. So in other words, a binary star system that includes Sirius. So the derivation itself, they start with the Stefan-Boltzmann law, which is just um, an equation that has energy flux on one side, and it says the energy flux is equal to a constant, the Stefan-Boltzmann constant, times temperature raised to the fourth power. And so I just feel the need to tell you that this temperature must be in Kelvin to use. It's my duty as a physicist to tell you that. (laughs) But what they do is they take the uh, energy flux, which is the left side of the equation, and they multiply it by the surface area of the star, which they assume to be a sphere, and that gives you the luminosity for the star. So that's the main point, you get the luminosity. And then if you take your binary star system and you compare the luminosity of one star relative to the other, so you take the ratio between the two, as it turns out, that's equal to the ratio between the the square of the radii for each of those stars. So if you take the square root of the luminosity Ratio, so the the ratio of luminosities, then you get the you then you get the ratio of the radii for each of the stars. and that's the main point. So I'm trying not to belabor the point, and I think I just did, but at least I didn't have to go through every step of the derivation with you in this reading, and I encourage you to now go look at it. Maybe it'll make a little more sense because we've talked about it a little bit. But notice that using this requires that both stars be visible, and what we know is that that's not always the case. It requires that both stars be visible so that we can determine the relative luminosity of each of the stars. Alright, stellar diameters. The results of many stellar size measurements over the years have shown that most nearby stars are roughly the size of the sun, with typical diameters of a million kilometers or so. Faint stars, as we might have expected, are generally smaller than more luminous stars. However, there are some dramatic exceptions to this simple generalization. A few of the very luminous stars those that are also red, indicating relatively low surface temperatures, turn out to be truly enormous. These stars are called, appropriately enough, giant stars, or supergiant stars. An example is Betelgeuse, the second brightest star in the constellation Orion, and one of the dozen brightest stars in our sky. Its diameter, remarkably, is greater than 10 AU, large enough to fill the entire inner solar system as almost as far out as Jupiter. That's its diameter. In a a later chapter, we'll look at detail at the evolutionary process that leads to the formation of such a giant and supergiant star, and we'll think about whether our star will take a similar path. There's a link to learning box here, and I encourage you to visit the link that's supplied in the box. (laughs) It says, watch this star-size comparison video for a striking visual that highlights the, the size of stars versus planets and the range of sizes among stars. This is the last section in chapter 18, and it's over the HR diagram, which is really cool and really useful. By the end of this section, you should be able to do two things. First, identify the physical characteristics of stars that are used to create an HR diagram and describe how those characteristics vary among groups of stars, and two, discuss the physical characteristics of most stars found at different locations on the HR diagram, such as radius and, for main sequence stars, mass. In this and the previous chapter, we described some characteristics by which we might classify stars and how those characteristics are measured. These ideas are summarized in Table 18.2, which I encourage you to take a look at. We have also given an example of a relationship between two of these characteristics in the mass-luminosity relation. When the characteristics of large numbers of stars were measured at the beginning of the 20th century, astronomers were able to begin a deeper search for patterns and relationships in these data. To help understand what sorts of relationships might be found, let's look briefly at a range of data about human beings. If you want to understand humans by comparing and contrasting their characteristics without assuming any previous knowledge of these strange creatures, you could try to determine which characteristics lead you in a fruitful direction. For example, you might plot the heights of a large sample of number of humans against their weights, which is the measure of their mass. Such a plot is shown in figure 1812, and it has some interesting features. In the way we have chosen to present the data, height increases upward whereas weight increases to the left. Notice that humans are not randomly distributed in the graph. Most points fall along a sequence that goes from the upper left to the lower right. We can conclude from this graph that human height and weight are related. Generally speaking, taller human beings weigh more, whereas shorter ones weigh less. This makes sense if you're familiar with the structure of human beings. Typically, if we have bigger, longer bones, we have more flesh to fill out our larger frame. It's not mathematically exact. There is a wide range of variation, but it's not a bad rule overall. And of course, There are dramatic exceptions. You occasionally see a short human who is very overweight and would thus be more to the bottom left of our diagram than the average sequence of people. Or you might have a very tall, skinny fashion model with a really big height but relatively small weight who would be found near the upper right. A similar diagram has been found to be extremely useful for understanding the lives of stars. In 1913, American astronomer Henry Norris Russell plotted luminosities of stars against their spectral classes. If you remember, luminosity is the intrinsic brightness of a star, and it's related to the mass of the star, and spectral class is related to the temperature of the star. This investigation and a similar independent study in 1911 by Danish astronomer Einar Hertzberg led to the extremely important discovery that the temperature and luminosity of stars are related. At this point in the reading, we've reached a Voyagers in Astronomy box, and it's about Henry Norris Russell. It says, when Henry Norris Russell graduated from Princeton University, his work had been so brilliant that the faculty decided to create a new level of honors degree beyond summa cum laude for him. His students later remembered him as a man whose thinking was three times faster than just about anybody else's. His memory was so phenomenal, he could correctly quote an enormous number of poems and limericks, the entire Bible, tables of mathematical functions, and almost anything he had learned about astronomy. He was nervous, active, competitive, critical, and very articulate. He tended to dominate every meeting he attended. In outward appearance, he was an old-fashioned product of the 19th century who wore high-top black shoes and high-starched collars and carried an umbrella every day of his life. His 264 papers, that is a lot for any scientist, were enormously influential in many areas of astronomy. Born in 1877, the son of a Presbyterian minister, Russell showed early promise. When he was 12, his family sent him to live with an aunt in Princeton so he could attend a top preparatory school. He lived in the same house in that town until his death in 1957, interrupted only by a brief stay in Europe for graduate work. He was fond of recounting that both his mother and his maternal grandmother had won prizes in mathematics and that he was probably inherit his, his talents in that field from their side of the family. Before Russell, American astronomers devoted themselves mainly to surveying stars and making impressive catalogs of their properties, especially their spectra. Russell began to see that interpreting the spectra of stars required a much more sophisticated understanding of physics particularly the physics of the atom, a subject that was still being developed by European physicists in the 1910s and 1920s. Russell embarked on a lifelong quest to ascertain the physical conditions inside stars from the clues in their spectra. In his work, he was inspired and continued inspiring a generation of astronomers, many trained by Russell and his collaborators. Russell also made important contributions in the study of binary stars and the measurement of star masses the origin of the solar system, the atmospheres of planets, and the measurement of distances in astronomy among other fields. He was an influential teacher and a popularizer of astronomy, writing a column on astronomical topics for the Scientific American magazine for more than 40 years. He and two colleagues wrote a textbook for astronomy classes that helped train astronomers and astronomy enthusiasts for over several decades. That book set the scene for the kind of textbook you are now reading or listening to, which not only lays out the facts of astronomy, but also explains how they fit together. Russell gave lectures around the country, often emphasizing the importance of understanding modern physics, which has to do with the atom as well as special relativity, in order to grasp what was happening in astronomy. Harlow Shapley, director of the Harvard College Observatory, called Russell the Dean of American Astronomers. Russell was certainly regarded as the leader for, of the field for many years and was consulted on many astronomical problems by colleagues around the world. Today, one of the highest recognitions that an astronomer can receive is an award from the American Astronomical Society called the Russell Prize set up in his memory. Let's now explore the HR diagram. Following Hertzsprung and Russell, let us plot the temperature of a selected group of nearby stars against their luminosity and see what we find. This is shown in figure 1814, and I strongly advise that you look at the graph. It's so cool, and it's important. Such a plot is frequently called the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, abbreviated HR diagram. It is one of the most important and widely used diagrams in astronomy, and frankly, it's one of the coolest, with applications that extend far beyond the the purposes for which it was originally developed more than a century ago. Most graphs have, in a two-dimensional graph, they have a quantity that increases as you move upward in the graph and a quantity that increases as you move in the right for the graph. In the case of the HR diagram, luminosity increases as you move up in the graph, but temperature increases as you move to the left in the graph. So it's kind of a funky plotting where what normally would increase as you go right in the graph now increases as you go left. There's a similarity between the plots, the HR diagram, and the plot of height and weight for people, which is kind of cool. Stars like people are not distributed over the diagram at random, as they would be if they exhibited all combinations of luminosity and temperature. Instead, we see stars cluster in certain parts of the HR diagram. The great majority are aligned along a narrow sequence, running from the upper left, which is the hot, highly luminous region, to the lower right, which is the cool, less luminous region. This band of points is called the main sequence, and you'll want to remember that. That's an important part of the diagram. It represents the relationship between temperature and luminosity that is followed by most stars, including our sun. For stars lying on the main sequence, which again extends from the upper left towards the lower right, We can summarize their relationship by saying that the hotter stars are more luminous and the cooler stars are less luminous. A number of stars, however, lie above the main sequence on the HR diagram in the upper right region where, yeah, they're really luminous, but they're also low temperature. How can a star be at once cool, meaning each square meter on the star does not put out all that much energy, yet very luminous? The only way is for the star to be enormous. They have to have so many square meters on the surface that the total energy output is still large, making them highly luminous. These stars must be giants or supergiants, the stars of huge diameter that we discussed earlier. There are also some stars in the lower left corner of the diagram. This means they have low luminosity and high temperatures. But if you remember, Having high surface temperatures means that each square meter on the star puts out a lot of energy, so the only way that they can be dim is if they're very small. Such stars are known as white dwarfs. White because at these high temperatures, the color of the electromagnetic radiation that they emit blend together to make them look bluish white. We'll say more about these puzzling objects in a moment. I also recommend that you take a look at figure 1815. It's a schematic of HR diagram for a large sample of stars drawn to make the different types even more apparent. Now, think back to our discussion of star surveys. It's difficult to plot an HR diagram that is truly representative of all stars because most stars are so faint that we can't see those outside our immediate neighborhood. Stars plotted in figure 1814 were selected because their distances are known. This sample omits any intrinsically faint stars that are nearby but have not had their distances measured, so it shows fewer faint main sequence stars than a fair diagram would. To be truly representative of the stellar population, an HR diagram should be plotted for all stars within a certain distance, including the faint ones. Unfortunately, our knowledge is reasonably complete only for stars within 10 to 20 light years of the sun, among which there are no giants or supergiants. Still, from many surveys, and more can now be done with new, more powerful telescopes, we estimate that about 90% of the true stars overall, excluding brown dwarfs, in our part of space are main sequence stars. About 10% are brown dwarfs, and fewer than 1% are giants or supergiants. These estimates can be used directly to understand the lives of stars. Permit us another quick analogy with people. Suppose we survey people just like astronomers survey stars, but we want to focus our attention on the local group of young people ages 6 to 18. Survey teams fan out and take data about where such youngsters are found at all times during a 24-hour day. Some are found at the local pizza parlor, others are asleep at home, some are at the movies, and many are in school. After surveying a very large number of young people, one of the things that the teams determine is that averaged over the course of 24 hours, one-third of all youngsters are found at school. How can they interpret this result? Does it mean that Two-thirds of students are truants, and the remaining one-third spend all their time in school? No, we must bear in mind that the survey teams counted youngsters throughout the full 24-hour day. Some survey teams worked at night when most youngsters were home at sleep, and others worked late in the afternoon when most of the youngsters were on their way home from school and likely to be enjoying pizza. If the survey was truly representative, we can conclude, however, that if an average one-third, average of one-third of all youngsters are found in school, then humans ages 6 to 18 years old must spend about one-third of their time in school. We can do something similar for stars. We find that on average, 90% of all stars look are located on the main sequence of the HR diagram. If we can identify some activity or life stage with the main sequence, then it follows that stars must spend 90% of their lives in that activity or life stage. So let's look at the main sequence. In a previous chapter, we discussed that the Sun is a representative star. We saw that So let's focus for a moment on the main sequence. In a previous chapter, we discussed the Sun as a representative star. We saw that what stars such as the Sun do for a living is to convert protons into helium deep in their interiors in the process of nuclear fusion, thus, producing energy. The fusion of protons into helium is an excellent, long-lasting energy source for a star because the bulk of every star consists of hydrogen atoms whose nuclei are protons. That is, most of the star is the fuel that it uses to heat the interior. Our computer models of how stars evolve over time show us that a typical star will spend about 90% of its life fusing the abundant hydrogen and its core into helium. This then is a good explanation of why 90% of all stars are found on the main sequence in the HR diagram. But if all the stars on the main sequence are doing the same thing, fusing hydrogen, why are they distributed along a sequence of points? That is, why do they differ in luminosity and surface temperature, which is what we're plotting on the HR diagram? Why aren't they all located at the exact same position? To help us understand how main sequence stars differ, We can use one of the most important results from our studies of model stars. Astrophysicists, or physicists of astronomy, have been able to show that the structure of stars that are in equilibrium and derive all their energy from nuclear fusion is completely and uniquely determined by just two quantities. One, the total mass, and two, the composition of the star. This fact provides an interpretation of many features of the HR diagram. Imagine a cluster of stars forming a cloud of interstellar raw material whose chemical composition is similar to the sun's. We'll describe this process in more detail in a later chapter, but for now the details won't concern us. In such a cloud, all the clumps of gas and dust that become stars begin with the same chemical composition and differ from one another only in mass. Now suppose that we compute a model of each of these stars for the time at which it becomes stable and derives its energy from nuclear reactions, but before it has time to alter its composition appreciably as a result of these reactions. The models calculated for these stars allow us to determine their luminosities, their temperatures, and their sizes. If we plot the results from these models one point for each model star on the HR diagram, we get something that looks just like the main sequence we saw for real stars. And here's what we find when we do this. The model stars with the largest masses are the hottest and most luminous, and they are located in the upper left of our diagram. The least massive model stars are the coolest and least luminous, and they are placed in the lower right of the plot. The other model stars lie along a line, running diagonally across the diagram. In other words, the main sequence turns out to be a sequence of stellar masses. This makes sense if you think about it. The most massive stars have the most gravity and can thus compress their centers to the greatest degree. This means that they are the hottest inside and the best at generating energy from nuclear reactions deep within. As a result, they shine with the greatest luminosity and have the hottest surface temperatures. These large, bright, hot stars sit in the upper left of the HR diagram. The stars with the lowest mass, in turn, are the coolest inside and the least effective in generating energy. Thus, they are the least luminous and wind up being the coolest on the surface. These small, cool, low-luminosity stars sit in the lower right on the HR diagram. Our Sun lies somewhere in the middle of these extremes, and you can see this in figure 1814. The characteristics of representative main sequence stars, excluding brown dwarfs, which are not true stars, are listed in Table 18.3. I recommend that you spend a little time with the table if you have a moment. Note that we've seen this 90% figure come up before. This is exactly what we found earlier when we examined the mass luminosity relation. We observed that 90% of all stars seem to follow the relationship. These are the 90% of stars that lie on the main sequence in our H.R. diagram. Our models and observations agree. What about those other stars in the H.R. diagram? The giants and supergiants in the upper right, and the white dwarfs in the lower left? As we'll see in the next few chapters, these are what main sequence stars turn into as they age. They are the later stages of a star's life. As a star consumes its nuclear fuel, its source of energy changes, as do its chemical composition and interior structure. These changes cause the star to alter its luminosity and surface temperature so that it no longer lies on the main sequence of our diagram. Because stars spend much less time in these later stages of their lives, we see fewer stars in those regions in the HR diagram. Let's think a little bit about extremes. We can use the HR diagram to explore extremes in size, luminosity, and density found among the stars. Such extreme stars are not only interesting to the fans of the genius book of world records, they can teach us a lot about how stars work. For example, we saw that the most massive main sequence stars are the most luminous ones, and if you remember, The luminosity of a star depends on the mass raised to the fourth power, so if you double the mass you get 16 times the luminosity, so a big mass means a lot of luminosity. We know of a few extreme stars that are a million times more luminous than the Sun, with masses that exceed 100 times the Sun's mass. These are super luminous stars, which are at the upper left of the HR diagram. They are exceedingly hot, very blue stars of spectral type O. These are the stars that would be the most conspicuous at vast distances in space. So we've just considered the upper upper left part of the HR diagram, stars that are really hot and really luminous. But what happens if we jump over to the upper right part of the HR diagram and look at stars that are really luminous but not as hot? These cool supergiants are as much as 10,000 times as luminous as the sun. In addition, these stars have diameters that are very much larger than that of our sun. As discussed above, some supergiants are so large that if the solar system could be centered in one, the stars' surface would lie beyond the orbit of Mars. We will have to ask in coming chapters what process can make a star swell up so much in enormous size, and how long these swollen stars can last in their distended state. You might also wonder, and quite appropriately, if our sun will ever reach such a distended state and we'll cover that in a coming chapter. Now let's consider the very common cool low luminosity stars at the lower end of the main sequence, so the lower right, which are much smaller and more compact than the Sun. An example of such a red dwarf is Ross 614b, with a surface temperature of 2700 Kelvin and only one-two-thousandth the Sun's luminosity. We call such a star a dwarf because its diameter is only one-tenth that of the Sun. A star with such a low luminosity also has a low mass, about one-twelfth that of the Sun. This combination of mass and diameter means that it's so compressed that the star has an average density of about 80 times that of our Sun. Its density must be higher, in fact, than that of any known solid found on the surface of Earth. Despite this, the star is made of gas throughout because its center is so hot. The faint red main sequence stars are not the stars of the most extreme densities, however, the white dwarfs at the lower left corner of the HR diagram have densities of many times greater still. Let's think a little bit more about these white dwarfs. The first white dwarf star was detected in 1862. Called Sirius B, it forms a binary system with Sirius A, the brightest appearing star in the sky. It eluded discovery and analysis for a long time because its faint light tends to be lost in the glare of nearby Sirius A. Since Sirius A is often called the Dog Star, being the brightest star in the constellation of Canis Major, the Big Dog, (laughs) Sirius B is sometimes nicknamed the Pup. At this point, we have found thousands of white dwarfs. Table 18.1 shows that about 7% of the true stars in our local neighborhood are white dwarfs. Just as a reminder, true stars don't include things like brown dwarfs. A good example of a typical white dwarf is a nearby star called 40 Iridani b. Its surface temperature is relatively hot. It's about twice that of our sun. But its luminosity is only 1 over 275th that of our sun. Here's where it gets interesting. This white dwarf that we're talking about, this type of star, is kinda small. It's about the size of Earth. Yet, it is so much more massive than Earth. It has about half the mass of our sun. That means that its density is humongous. It's 300,000 grams per centimeter cubed to so put that into context the mass of our planet is about 5.5 grams per centimeter cubed so you can imagine holding a teaspoonful of sand or a teaspoonful of rock right it's not that massive a teaspoon is something that you use to measure small quantities to put in soup but if you had a teaspoon of this white dwarf it would be about 1.6 tons. That's about how heavy it would be. So this little star, about the size of Earth, has a big bang for its buck. At such enormous densities, matter can't exist in its usual state. And we'll look at this particular behavior of this type of matter in a much later chapter, but for now, we'll just note that white dwarfs are dying stars reaching the end of their productive lives and ready for their stories to be over. The British astrophysicist and science populizer, Arthur Eddington, who lived from 1882 to 1944, described the first known white dwarf in this way. The message of the companion of Sirius, when decoded, read, I'm composed of material 3,000 times denser than anything you've ever come across. A ton of my material would be a little nugget to you that you could put in a matchbox. What reply could one make to something like that? Well, the reply most of us made in 1914 was, shut up, man, don't talk nonsense. Today, however, astronomers not only accept that stars as dense as white dwarfs exist, but, as we will see, have found even denser and stranger objects in their quest to understand the evolution of different types of stars. Now we've reached the summary for chapter 18. 18 18.1, A Stellar Census. To understand the properties of stars, we must make wide-ranging surveys. We find the stars that appear brightest to our eyes are bright primarily because they are very intrinsically luminous, not because they are closest to us. Most of the nearest stars are intrinsically so faint that they can only be seen with the aid of a telescope. Stars with low mass and low luminosity are much more common than stars with high mass and high luminosity. Most of the brown dwarfs in the local neighborhood have not yet been discovered. 18.2 Measuring Stellar Masses The masses of stars can be determined by analysis of the orbit of binary stars, two stars that orbit a common center of mass. In visual binaries, the two stars can be seen separately in a telescope, whereas in spectroscopic binaries, only the spectrum reveals the presence of the two stars. Stellar masses range from about 1 to more than a hundred times the mass of our Sun, and in rare cases going to 250 times the Sun's mass. As we continue to smaller masses, we see that objects with masses between 1 12th and 1 100th that of the sun are called brown dwarfs. And objects in which no nuclear reactions can take place are called planets. The most massive stars are, in most cases, the most luminous. And this correlation is known as the mass luminosity relation. 18.3, diameters of stars. The diameters of stars can be determined by measuring the time it takes an object, the moon, a planet, or a companion star, to pass in front of it and block its light. Diameters of members of eclipsing binary systems where the stars pass in front of each other can be determined through analysis of their orbital motions. 18.4. The HR Diagram The Hertzsprung-Russell Diagram, or HR Diagram, is a plot of stellar luminosity against surface temperature. Most stars lie on the main sequence which extends diagonally across the HR diagram from high temperature and high luminosity in the upper left to low temperature and low luminosity in the lower right. The position of a star along the main sequence is determined by its mass. High mass stars emit more energy and are hotter than low mass stars on the main sequence. Main sequence stars derive their energy from the fusion of protons to helium. About 90% of the stars lie on the main sequence. Only about 10% of the stars are white dwarfs, and fewer than 1% are giants or supergiants. That's the end of chapter 18, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to this recording. I am certainly having a lot of fun recording these for you, and I hope to be able to speak to you more about chapter 19 soon. Until then, guys, really enjoy this material and happy studying. All right, talk to you soon.